Well, we've been working our way through Thessalonians, and we really have maybe jumped off chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says, I I want to see you face to face. I want to be with you, and I want to be with you in person because it's better than being apart from you, and nothing will substitute that. And he says, I want to do it because I want to complete what is lacking in your faith. Right? I want to complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, he's not saying they don't have saving faith. He's simply saying you're not as mature as you could be. And there are some things that you need to improve on, and there are some things that you might not know yet. And so I'm, I want to be there to be able to fill in those holes for you and to, and to encourage you in your sanctification. You're growing in faith. And so Paul, again, prays that way. He prays for them in verses 11 to 13, praying that God would help them and establish them where they needed to be to live lives that were blameless before God, lives that were pleasing to him. And so he, want, he prays for that. And then he recognizes in chapter four that actually Though I can't be there, and though it's superior to be in person, and though I'm praying that God will meet that need, actually I can meet that need because I'm going to write a letter that will help you in the areas that you're lacking, and I'm going to address some of those issues with you. And so he exhorts them to receive this instruction on the way they ought to walk to be pleasing to God. Really the goal of every believer This is what you should be doing, desiring to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And we could say another way to describe sanctification, another way way to describe how we grow is to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And so he says, what I'm about to tell you isn't my idea, it's God's idea. It comes from the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he really lays out in those next sections, he says, I'm going to tell you, this is God's will for you, is basically what he says. God's will, your sanctification. I'm going to tell you what God wants for you. He wants you set apart from sin and apart from him. And then he begins to apply God's will to a specific area that is lacking in the Thessalonians. And he says, I want you to understand that God's will is your sanctification. For in sanctification applies to sexual morality. How, how are you to behave? And so he applies that to them and says, you need, you, you need to recognize you can't dabble in it, that you need to be self-controlled and ultimately you need to protect others in the body. And then he gives the motivations for following through on that. And he says, you need, you need to understand the motives that are necessary for you to be able to fulfill this. Because Jesus is the avenger. He's the one who will ultimately, you will stand in judgment before whether you lose rewards or it's demonstrated by your behavior that you're not his at all. And if God's called you to holiness, how can you stay in sin? And ultimately, if you reject this, you're rejecting the Holy Spirit who God has sent to call you to sanctification and enable you to live in a way that is pleasing to him. And he says, these should motivate you because God's given you the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill it. Now, as we come to verse 9, he's going to change, he's going to change topics now. And he's going to give us another area that the Thessalonians are lacking in their faith, an area that they could improve on. And he's going to talk about their brotherly love. And he's going to say, there's an area here that you're still lacking. There's things that you could do better. And he's really going to demonstrate for us this morning that brotherly love is actually central to your Christian life. It is central to Christianity. It isn't window dressing. It isn't something that just could happen, might happen, should happen, but it is something that is central to the Christian life. And in fact, if you don't have the love of God and if you don't have the love of the brethren, it demonstrates that you're not his at all. And so he wants to make sure that the Corinthians are 
even though we're in Thessalonica, (laughs) I don't know how they got here. So, well, Paul is writing from Corinth. So, you, you can see how Paul could get confused here. So, anyway, so the Thessalonians are, he is, <laughs> all right. Now I've lost my train of thought. That's good. That's good. So, he, he, the Thessalonians need to understand that brotherly love is something that needs to be demonstrated in their midst, and it needs to continue. And so he really gives us three truths about brotherly love here that will help us to get brotherly love central to our Christian life and recognizing the essential, that is it essential to, to the believer to have it in his life. And so the first thing we will see is that brotherly love is innate to the believer. It's like a dog that barks. If you are a, if you are a believer, you will love the brethren. A dog barks because he's a dog. He says, if you're a believer, you'll love the brethren. Secondly, he says, you need to nourish brotherly love. You need to nourish it. In other words, it needs to be your goal to increase in, in brotherly love. It's not enough to have it or to think it's good, but you actually need to nourish it. And he's going to tell us how to nourish it to make it stronger. And thirdly, He's going to say that brotherly love produces advantages that are necessary for the the believer. It produces advantages that are absolutely central to being a believer. And so we'll see that here this morning. Now let's look at that first one coming up in verse 9. And we would talk about it being the, that the love for the brethren is innate to the believer. In other words, it's something that comes with being a believer. It's just something that a believer will do. He says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no one to need. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So he starts with this, this word, now as... And he is, he is changing topics. He is now addressing something different. And he often uses this same wording now as. He used it in chapter 5, verse 1, where he speaks to them again. and says, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need to, of anything to be written to you. And so he often uses this. He uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to introduce or to answer a question that the Thessalonians have asked him. Now, they haven't had time to write a letter, but Timothy has come back and and he has brought concerns from the Thessalonians to Paul. And so Paul has this information. So Paul is about to answer this question in this area of brotherly love. What do we need to do in this area and what is lacking in this area? Now, it's interesting here because Paul uses this word, love for the brethren. And it's actually one word in the Greek, and it's where we get our word Philadelphia. Philla, brother, right? Uh, Delphia, Adiphos, brother. Love of the brethren is the idea. Philla referring to love, Adiphos to brother. And he says, love of the brethren. This only occurs five times in Scripture. And it is an interesting term because the word Philadelphia here, this word for being love of the brethren, is a very, uh, what we would call exclusive term. It's not the term that we use for love for everybody. It's It's actually a very narrow term, and it was used for the love within a family. In other words, it was brother and sisterly love. And in the first century, there was a big deal about that. There was big uh, emphasis on family and family relationships and bloodlines. And so there was a particular love that was between siblings. It was a non-romantic love, but it was a love of, of, of we could almost say, through blood. It was unique love of, the fa- of a family. And Paul says here, 
as to the love of the brethren. In other words, as to the, uh, the love between, you are now have a love that's not just for families, but the family is redefined as those who are in the family of God. And he says, as to that love, that love between those who are in the family of God, you have no one, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now that's kind of an interesting statement because what does Paul just do now after that? He writes about it. So what do you mean you don't have anybody, to, you don't need to write about it, yet you're going to write about it? What's he doing? Well, this is a, a rhetorical device called a paralipsis, whereby the writer introduces a topic, downplaying the need for correction and instruction, and then he goes on to give some correction and instruction. So Paul, is, Paul has full intent of going this, but he's, he's pulling back a little bit and he's saying, really, there's some stuff you already know. There's some stuff that's already taking place. So why does he, does that? Why does he do this? Why, why does he do that? He, I mean, he did it in chapter 5, verse 1. You have no need of anything to be written to you. So why does he do that? Because he wants to give them accommodation. He wants to give them confirmation, confirmation. He wants to affirm what is already taking place in the Thessalonians. He wants to say to them, listen, I know that you are already doing this. I, I want you to know that I recognize that this is already starting to thrive among you. And you can see Paul's heart here. You can see that he's got the heart of a shepherd. He's, he doesn't just say, well, I'm just one of those rough, tough guys who's just going to tell it like it is and let the chips fall where they may. I'll hurt your feelings and I'll run you over, but, but I'm faithful to the truth, right? He doesn't do that. Before he get, comes to the correction, before he encourages them to in the area of brotherly love, he says, I, I just want to commend you. I want to give you affirmation. And so he wants them to make sure that he knows that, listen, I, I know you're already doing this. I don't, I'm not saying you're not doing this. I just want you to know that. And so there's an encouragement here. I want to commend you. And he gives this confirmation and he says it's a necessary part of the consequences of the Christian life. In other words, this love, he says, happens automatically. And we see this in verses 9 and the first half of verse 10. It, it, it happens automatically, the, and this, in the love of the brethren. And Paul wants to show how this happened in the Thessalonian lives. He says there's two ways. He wants to affirm that they are following this. He says in verse 9, For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He says, This is why I don't have to write to you, because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You, in other words, you have God as your teacher. In other words, you don't need me because the foundational teaching that is being done on this is being done by God himself. At the, most, at the most basic level. And so he says, God, God is teaching you. We, we saw that earlier where he said, God has put his, what, phrase, his spirit in you. He is the one who is teaching you. And he says, he, he takes his phrase, taught by God, literally, he takes the word theos and the, and the word for teaching, and he puts them together. It's a word that never occurs any other time in Scripture. It's not seen outside of Scripture. It's not seen before Scripture was written. It's not, it doesn't appear afterwards. And he says, you're taught by God. He doesn't say you were taught by God, but rather you are taught by God. In other words, this is a continual present reality that God is teaching you in this area. And it indicates that there, 
education and Christian love was ongoing. Learning to love is never an ever-ending discipline. Something that comes from divine working of God himself. And again, we can hear these words, these similar words echoed for us in Isaiah 54, 13. As he reminded, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus said, and here it is. The Holy Spirit is here. He is teaching. And again, it reflects those Old Testament prophecies in Ezekiel 37, 14. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you in your land. In other words, God had promised there would be a time when his Holy Spirit would come and indwell and he would would teach them and he would bring them to life spiritually. And Paul is saying here, Thessalonians, this is what's happening to you. You are being God taught. You have the Holy Spirit. Again, he's not saying there's new recipients. He's just saying that you too have the blessings that were promised to Israel. He promised that he would give his Holy Spirit to them, that he would give them a new heart. And he says, you now have the privilege of having those blessings as well. It's not that God is done with Israel and that his promises won't come. Romans chapter 9 and 10 tell us that he, these promises are unilateral and will not be broken and God keeps his word. But what Paul does say is that this church, this church in Thessalonica that's made up of all of these different people from different groups, different economic status, social status, even different, different ethnic backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, he says, you get to foretaste this. You get a foretaste of what God had promised. He says, God will now internalize his law in you. He will teach you from within. He will teach you inside. He says, this is what happens to you. And because you have the Holy Spirit and because God is inside you, that is why brotherly love is what? Inevitable. It's inevitable because he's the one inside you producing it. He will teach you. And so one who has been regenerated, one who has been born again, now has God as his teacher. He has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. And he gets a foretaste of that blessing. And what are they being taught by this Holy Spirit? What are they being taught by God? That they love one another. This is integral to God's revelation, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were called to what? Love your neighbor. Leviticus 19.18. The command is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. You go to the New Testament, Romans 13, where Paul says that we are to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And if, you, if there's any command, it is summed up in saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this was a primary pillar of God's revelation of his will for his people, that you must love one another. It was written in the Old Testament. It was written in the law. It was part of his commands. It was his will for his people that they love one another. But as we read in the Old, Te- in the New T- Old Testament, that just left on the page, that just written, just because they read it in letters didn't mean that it transformed them. It wasn't enough just to have it on the page. In fact, when Israel read it, they hardened their hearts. It wasn't enough to make them love. It wasn't enough to make them obey. They read the law. They saw what God required, but they couldn't do it. What they needed was regeneration. What they needed was a new heart. A heart that by the power of the Holy Spirit would embrace 
what God wrote, that would apply it, that would bind itself to the words that were written and make it possible. And with the Holy Spirit inside, it takes those words and they become an eternal, internal reality. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, this is what happened to you. He says, this is what happened to you. You have this love for one another. And there is no parallel experience of brotherly love outside of regeneration. It doesn't matter. There is no love like this brotherly love that can be produced by anyone who's not regenerate. You cannot experience it. No matter how hard people try and how much people try to apply principles even, it is impossible. It does not come from the natural man. It doesn't matter how much effort you make. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You can't trace brotherly love to your upbringing or to some part of your genetics. I'm just made that way. It's not to your heritage. I was taught that way. It's not some kind of conditioning you received by, as a child. It's not through natural human effort. It's not through some intuitive feeling. You understand that the love for the brethren, this Philadelphia, is totally supernatural and miraculous. You cannot manufacture it in your flesh. And so God has given us his spirit to love the brethren. You are taught what? to love, taught by God, to love one another. Now it's interesting because this, this word, love, is a verb. It's a verb. It's not a feeling. It's not some object idea. It's actually demonstrated in action. In other words, it's not enough to have sentimentality and feelings for other believers. You actually have to exercise love in action. It's not enough to say it. It's not enough to feel it. It must be action. And so he says, the Holy Spirit, God has taught you to what? To love one another. In other words, I love you, you love me, we're a great big family. But the reality in, in the church, it's true. In the church, it's true. And we're called, again, this is a reciprocal noun, we're to what? Love one another. And we are to do it in action. And he says, this is, this is, this is just the natural response of a believer. This isn't innate to him. It's produced by God and it comes out. It is what we would call the natural response. And it is only po- not only possible in Christ, Now listen to this very carefully because I think this is, it is not just possible with Christ, but it is inevitable. Okay? It's not just possible, but it is inevitable. Why? Because it's supernaturally imparted. You yourselves are taught by God to what? Love one another. In other words, as 1 John says, if we don't love, what? We're not of God. And if we don't love our brethren, right? We're not of God. Because the inevitable result of being in God is that we love. 
So not only are we taught to love one another by God, but he says, but, but not only that, it has been manifested openly to others. In other words, Paul says, not only do I, do I know that I don't need to write to you about this, even though I'm going to, because I want to give you some more information, because you've been taught by God, but it's also been openly manifested to others. In other words, others can see this. He says in verse 10, for indeed... You do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. So again, he says indeed, which looks forward to the fact that they are actually practicing it. We could translate it in reality or without question. Without question, you are practicing this. This is what, this is what you are about. This is how, what you are doing. That you are now demonstrating your love to one another. For you practice it towards all the brethren. In other words, you're not just loving on the brethren in your church. You're loving on all the believers that you come in contact with. You're not just exclusive to just your local assembly, but all those who are come into contact with you are now loved by this love produced by God. And he said, you are doing it to all those who are born of Christ, all those who are in Christ's family. And again, we know that there was many believers who traveled through Thessalonica. It was a place where there was good trade routes. And so people came through there. And when they came through or when the Thessalonians went out from there, they practiced this love. Now, it doesn't tell us how they did. But Paul just says simply, you are exercising brotherly love to them, whether you are helping them along in their travels, whether you are giving them a place to stay, whether you are give, giving them food and support or fellowship. He says, you are loving on them. And so Paul says again, Thessalonians, I just want you to know that love for the brethren is just what believers do. Because that is what God has placed in them and taught them to do. And so it is not optional for the believer. It's not something that you think could happen. It is who you are. And therefore, don't think that brotherly love is something that can be set aside or something that is additional to your faith. It is central to it. Don't forget its importance. Now, after saying that it's intuitive and saying that it is something that is taught by God and something that is inevitable for the believer, there might be a certain part of us that would just simply say, great, I don't have to do anything. God's going to do it. God's going to produce it. The fact is, if I was to actually strive for this, that would just be human works in my flesh, right? So I'm off the hook, and the way I am is the way I am, and if I'm not loving, it's just because God hasn't taught me yet, not my fault, right? And so there might be a tendency for us to say, well, that's it. I, I don't have to do anything. Nothing needs to be done. It's just going to take place. I'll just sit till love strikes me. But Paul does address that, and he kind of closes that loophole in this next part of the verse. He says, actually, you need to be nurturing. You need to actually nurture brotherly love. It's something that, that you need to put an effort into. It's not just God is teaching you, God is empowering you, but guess what? There's something on your side to do as well, and you need to nurture God's love. God produces change, but we must also strive on our side. He, said in, he says in verse 10, 10b, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a life, quiet life, and attend your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Now it's interesting because Paul again goes through here, and we saw earlier that he gave us 
some commands based on that's, and then we saw that he went through and he gave us some phrases that all started with a, a explanatory conjunction. Well, now he's going to come and he's going to really tell us how we are to nurture our brotherly love and under that category of, of brotherly love that he's talked about in the beginning of the verses. And he's going to give us four phrases that are all infinitive phrases, infinitive clauses. And he's going to give us four commands, really, that fall underneath brotherly love and under that big caption of brotherly love. How does brotherly love work? What do we need to do for it to happen? And he's going to give us four commands here so that we can nurture brotherly love. So the first is we have to love extravagantly. We have to love have brotherly love, and it needs to be extravagant. He says, but I urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So he, he really starts this whole thing with, we urge you. And this idea here is, is again, it has the idea, you could almost call it a uh, command, in, in the fact that he is, it's like a summons to court. It's the idea of, of you must come, you, you have to come. It's, it, it's, a, it's a strong urging to action. And it's, a, it's an exhortation here. And he says, you, uh, we urge you, we strongly suggest, we st- you must come, you must do this, brethren. And he says, the first thing you must do when it comes to brotherly love is to excel still more. Now we looked at this word before. It means to cause to superabound, to be in excess, to overflow, to be in affluence, to excel, to be beyond measure. And again, the implication is that there's considerably more than what would be expected or needed. And he says, I'm urging you, first of all, that you excel still more. In other words, I've told you, Thessalonians, that you're doing well. I've told you that, that I've commended you that really God is already teaching you and you're already expressing it. But I, I want it still more. The idea here is a greater degree, a higher degree, more of it. And he's saying there's always room to increase and grow in love. Like a living plant, it must continue to grow and bear more fruit. He says, you too must what continue to practice love. You must make it your mission to grow. To keep expanding. Love always stretching out after an approximation to the divine standard, as one person said. We want, in other words, you love and you're loving the brethren, but you want to what? Reach, stretch to the divine standard to meet what God has demonstrated we should be. He prayed for that in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. And may the Lord cause you to increase in what? Abound in love. And so he says, it's not enough We can't take our foot off the accelerator. Excel still more. You're doing well, but do more. Be more sacrificial. Be more loving. Be more helpful. And he says, your love cannot, you cannot be satisfied with the level of love that you're expressing right now and the level of love you have. Ask God to teach you more. Ask God to help you to express it more. Never stop growing. Can you imagine being in a church where everybody was excelling at loving one another? Where every week they made it their ambition to come and to be loving and to express that love. It might be a little overwhelming, right? Because you can imagine if you... If you, if you were, you know, very pragmatic about it and said, I'm going to say one kind thing or encourage one person once 
the first Sunday, and I'm going to do it this two times the next Sunday, and three times the next Sunday, and four times the next Sunday, and five times the next Sunday, and six times the next Sunday, seven times the next Sunday, you would find that maybe fellowship time after church might take just a little bit longer. Right? And can you imagine how joyous it would be? Right? You would, you, you would be just like, this is a great place. I'm getting affirmed. I'm getting challenged. I'm getting loved on. Oh, it's terrible. Right? And he says, still love more. Still love more. Don't be satisfied. And then he says this. Live peaceably. Live peaceably. He says, and make your ambition to lead a quiet life. So we're not just supposed to excel in brotherly love, but partly how we do that is to what? To live peaceably. This is how we foster brotherly love. Make it your ambition. Literally be fond of honor. This was often used as a term for those who were in political office. They were striving for political office. They wanted, they were ambitious in order to get influence. And he says, I want you to be as ambitious as a politician who's trying to win the election, doing whatever he can to win. He says, I want you to be the same way, just as zealous in your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now that's kind of the opposite. He says, in one sense, I want you to be super ambitious. On the other time, the, the idea of, of, of being quiet is actually just being silent. In other words, I, I want you to what? Live a life that is marked not by restless energy and activity, but a life that is earnestly seeking to be quiet. In other words, to live a life that is free from turmoil, free from getting in trouble. To be at rest. To refrain from disturbing activities. In other words, don't be that person that is causing trouble all the time. We look at the fruits of of the flesh, right? And what do we have? Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. He says, that's not to be you, believer. You're not to be the one who's causing trouble all of the time, disputes, envying, drunkenness, carousing, all of these things. He says, no, lead a quiet life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, expressed by joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. He says, this should be the, uh, your lifestyle. You shouldn't be the one who's throwing the apple cart all over, causing the authorities trouble, causing everyone else trouble, always disputing. He says, no, actually, I want you to put as much effort into living a quiet life as a politician does to win his election, to get honor. Actually, make it your honor that you live a quiet life. Don't be a social climber. Don't try to get more influence. Just live a quiet life. You can imagine if you have people who are social climbers and are looking for more influence and trying for priority, how is that going to work for brotherly love? Right? It's not. You're going to have factions everywhere. It never feels good when you are the back that someone steps on to get forward. Right? And so he says, don't be like that. Then he says this, if we're going to foster brotherly love, the, the next thing you need to do is attend to your own business. Or we could say, mind your own business. Mind your own business. Again, he emphasizes your own business, not others' businesses, yours. In other words, don't have your nose in everybody's business. Don't be going around trying to tell everyone else how they should live their Christian life and how they should be doing their affairs and their orders. 
we're pretty good at this. Some of us like to, uh, what do we say? Tell everyone else how they should and shouldn't be doing things. And we're, we don't necessarily, there's a, that person who doesn't necessarily do anything themselves, but they certainly are willing to weigh in on every issue in everybody else's life, what they should and shouldn't have done, what their kids shouldn't and shouldn't have done, right? You, you notice this with your kids. Oftentimes they're much more interested in what their siblings are doing and what their responsibilities are, Right? Uh, he got up from the table. Yeah, but how do you know if you weren't, if you were just doing your homework, right? And we tend to be that way. And he says, actually, mind your business. In other words, do what your duty is supposed to be. Do the thing that you're called to do and stop worrying about everybody else's life. All right? So again, we, we, we have thing, tasks that we're supposed to do about and so if we're more busy about the things we need to improve in our lives and the things that God calls us to do, then we won't have time for everybody else's problems and everybody else's ideas. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place where we help one another, but we can't be pre- preoccupied to the point where we stop working on ourselves and doing the things that God has called us to do because we're so busy worried about everybody else. And nobody likes a busybody. Nobody likes someone who's always running around causing trouble. Often this is done under the label of love, right? Being a busybody. I just want what's best for you. We need to be careful that we don't become that. Because we can often put our own motives and put them in nice, righteous language, can't we? And he says, don't do that. Mind your business. Work on the things that God's called you to do. Stay on your task. And then he says, the fourth thing is here is simply work diligently. He says, and work with your hands. This is the most concrete command. In other words, you need to work. Paul makes a direct connection between laboring and love. Uh Uh-oh. He makes a direct connection between what? Laboring and love. He says, in other words, you need to engage in work. With your hands indicates Paul is referring to manual labor. Now, he's not saying that you can't have a, a... a white collar job, but what he is saying here is you need to work. And there must have been some of those in Thessalonica, whether they were looking forward to the Lord's second return or just because they were, had, had new privileges in Christ that had decided that they weren't going to work. And now they were not working with their hands. In fact, the, the, the Romans and the Greeks despised labor. They despised They liked the work. They didn't like the workers. One Greek writer said, while we delight in work, we despise the workmen. As for instance, in the case of perfumes and dyes, we take delight in them, but dyers and perfumers we regard as illiberal and vulgar folk. And so there was a disdain for work. There was a disdain for manual labor. There's also the poor at that time who, listen to this, like to live off others, who are always looking for a handout and asking for people to help them. Does that sound familiar? Man doesn't change. And he says, Christian, get to work. Make a living. Provide for yourself, provide for your family. Part of being loving is actually working because in working, you are demonstrating love for your brethren. No one is dependent upon you and you provide for yourself. In other words, he says, 
you have to work. If you want to produce brotherly love, you work. Because in working, you don't impose on others. Now he says, just as we commanded you. Just as we commanded you. Paul says, I'm not giving you anything new here. This is something that I've already written to you. This is something that I gave to you, not down the line, but right when I started and gave you the gospel. And he says, I'm calling you, I'm binding you to do this. This is not an option for the believer. It is a commandment. Is a commandment. So Paul, as he moves along here, he says, listen, we recognize that love is produced innately in the believer. We also recognize we need to nourish it. But then he points out here in verse 12, the advantages that are essential to the Christian life. He says, without brotherly love, these things will not take place. He says, first of all, a good testimony so that you will behave properly to outsiders. In other words, that you will have a testimony. This is really the purpose statement for the last four commands that he's given to us. How to nourish it, those commands are now stated here and he says the reason you obey these commands the reason that you do these things is so that you will behave properly to outsiders this is this is how you will behave that you will be decent and becomingly to others that you will conduct yourself with decorum decently and a fitting manner to to unbelievers when he says outsiders, again, and I've already given it away, he's not talking about those, he's talking about unbelievers, not those within the church or those who are set aside in the church, but the unbeliever. And he says, here's what happens when you exercise brotherly love. It gives you a proper way to behave before unbelievers that gives you a testimony. In other words, when they look at you, they see the integrity of your life. They see the love that you are giving for one another. And he says, then you will behave decently to them. When you interact with them, they will see that. And he says, you will have a testimony before them. And it constitutes a powerful testimony to unbelievers and makes the gospel credible. In other words, when you practice the things that bring brotherly love, you ultimately put a, you adorn the gospel, and as others see it, it makes the gospel attractive. Instead of saying those Christians are hypocrites, instead of saying those Christians are awful people, they're going to see you demonstrate the brotherly love that God has called you to. And as you demonstrate it, it is a powerful testimony to those who do not know him. And as we, now listen to this, we don't stop there, but while we proclaim the gospel in light of the return of Christ, we are most effective when we demonstrate brotherly love. And they see that, and it's attractive. And then, Lastly, he simply says, it's a benefit to you personally. It's a benefit to you personally. He says, the advantage is it's a benefit to you. In other words, when you work, you don't need anything or you don't need anyone. It can be translated either way. And here's the irony. In exercising brotherly love, and this is God's system, in exercising brotherly love, it is always beneficial to you. God blesses you for being obedient to him. And he says, when you 
exercise brotherly love and you do what God has called you to do, ultimately you don't need anyone or you don't need anything. In other words, you are provided for. And you put yourself in a position because you have labored to produce. And because you are laboring, as Paul says, stop stealing, get a job, give away. That's what the believer does. And so instead of being a burden on the rest of the church and being someone who is taking the resources of others, you can be a contributor to the church. And he says, the blessing is you get to be one of those people because you don't need anything. You're taken care of. Your needs are met. And guess what? You have something to give to others. And he says, don't you want to be that person who instead of being a person who takes, someone who is always taking advantage of of brotherly love, because there's always going to be those who come along and say, hey, this is a good place to be. People give, I'll take. And Paul says, no, actually you work, you do these things so that you are one who is what? Has nothing, you don't have a need. You're taken care of and you can help others. Now, we're not saying there are not legitimate needs within the church. We are commanded to take care of widows. We are commanded to take care of our families. But there are circumstances that prevent self-sufficiency. And so we take care of those. But we need to make sure that we are, are those who, where possible, we are those who work. There's a moral duty for us to love. And to be independent. He says it is necessary. We don't have any need. And so he says here's the advantages that come with brotherly love. You have a good testimony. And you are taken care of. You personally have all of your needs met. Because you have poured them out as God has called you to. And so this morning we are simply called to recognize that this is central to our faith. This isn't something that we get to or we get to arrive to. It is something starts that at our conversion that continues to grow through our lifetime. That we must nourish it and recognize that it is, it is indispensable to our Christian life. It is indispensable. And if we do that, then we will be those who exercise brotherly love as we've been commanded to. And we will ultimately not only exist in a community that is a joy to be with, but more importantly, we will be pleasing to him, to our Lord Jesus Christ, who has called us out for this. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word and we thank you for this word on brotherly love. And I pray that we would see again how central it is to who we are as believers and that you would help us to be those who would exercise this brotherly love that you have taught us to love. And that we would be those who would pursue it, recognizing the benefits that come for your glory and for our good. And I pray that you would help us to take these truths and make them part of who we are, I pray in your name. Amen.